Well, we're going to continue our series through Psalms, and there's uh, this sermon and three more left before our summer of Psalms will be over. I hope you've been enjoying it. I've been hearing from many of you how the Lord has continued to use this great songbook that he's given to his people to show you new delights, new encouragements, and new corrections from his word. I hope this morning will be no different. Psalm 73, uh, as we're in the habit of doing, let's begin by uh, asking the Lord's blessing on our time together. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we are here before you together this morning. We are here with, bringing all of our burdens and cares and so many distractions. Lord, we need your help to see the world the way you would have us see it. To have a new vision. A vision of your providence. A vision of your goodness a vision of the hope that we have in Christ. Would you grant us that and so much more as we pay attention to this word written down, this song given for your people to sing? Would we be a people that are able to say our God is good and it's good for us to be in his presence? We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name, amen. It wasn't long ago when the headlines told us of the Colonial Pipeline going offline suddenly. Uh, you may remember it, it's a key piece of infrastructure moving um, oil from one part of our country to the other. Well, this very expensive, very long pipeline was brought down by something that seems oh so simple. Some computer hackers, uh, they came under what's known as a ransomware hack. Uh, maybe if you're not familiar with it, or maybe you are, it's uh, a type of attack, an inventive form of evil, where hackers get into your computer and they lock you out of all of your own data. Now that might be a little bit of a problem for you as an individual, but it's a really big problem for a government or a high-end business, which is why these sort of ransomware attacks continue to grow and grow. Uh, one firm who tracks these sort of things says that over the last year, they have grown by sevenfold the number of attacks that have happened. Uh, one firm that tracked only one particular group of hackers said that they got away with about $60 million in ransom each and every month. Now, with payouts that big, you can see why people might think this is the right sort of industry to be getting into. If you can get away with something, if you can get what you can get, and maybe you're even good at forgetting about the consequences, well, life sure seems like it might be fun to live. That's a problem for society, for people to feel like bad guys get away with things, but it's an even bigger problem for Christians. Have you ever had a moment of discouragement as you've watched someone living a life of sin that frankly looks fun? Have you ever had the thought to yourself, is my life of purity pointless? Is my life trying to live for God groundless? Is it even worth it to deny myself when it seems like people that do evil just keep on getting away with everything? Questions like that are why Psalm 73 is in our Bibles. It's a song from a legendary Levitical worship leader named Asaph with an age-old problem. Sometimes the evil look like they are prospering. Sometimes it looks like bad guys get away with it. 
And at times like that, it's possible even for us as God's people to find ourselves envious, wondering whether our whole pursuit of God with our lives is worthwhile. That's why Psalm 73 is here to help us transform our vision, to help us learn this one truth. The prism of God's providence makes envy of evil vanish. I'll say it again. The prism of God's providence makes envy of evil vanish. That's what Asaph will learn, and that's what we will learn along with him as we look through this psalm. We'll we'll break it up into two sections. Uh, The first is a vision of the problem of prospering evil. A vision of the problem of prospering evil. That'll be in verses 1 through 15. Uh, Second, a vision through the prism of God's providence. A vision through the prism of God's providence. That's in 16 through 28. And at the end of this all, I hope you are encouraged to live your life for Christ, who is enough for you. Let's begin in 1 through 15, a vision of the problem of prospering evil. Asaph is an excellent worship leader, and every good worship leader needs a great grasp of theology. Verse 1 shows us he knows the ABCs of theology. Uh, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Asaph is perfectly orthodox at this moment. He is declaring God is good, and he is good to his people, even those that live a life intentionally pure for him. Uh, Now, at this point, many of the commentators I was reading this week uh, mentioned that this psalm is falling into a well-worn sort of road within the psalms. It started all the way back in Psalm 1, that of a a wisdom psalm. Uh, Remember back to Psalm 1, there's two different ways you can live. You can either, either walk on the way of the wicked, or you can walk on the road of the righteous. And they have very different outcomes. The, the way of the wicked leads to destruction, but the way of the righteous, well, it leads to blessing and prosperity. Well, at this point in the psalm, it seems like Asaph is following the, that same pattern. It's good to be on God's side to live a pure life, but, but verses two and three show us that that pattern gets broken. Look at verse two. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph, he's expecting the righteous life to pay off. He's expecting the wicked to find themselves under God's wrath. And instead he sees evil seeming to flourish. He sees the proud seeming like they're going to go on having plenty in life, and he finds his own heart envious. The next eight verses describe what Asaph sees in this unfair vision of life. In verses four through five, he sees a vision of people that are pudgy and problem-free, now, now, back in those days in agrarian society, uh, to have a little extra padding was considered a good thing. People did hard manual labor. There wasn't enough food to go around a lot of times. So if you had a little extra hanging around, that was a sign that life was going well for you. Well, Asaph has this vision of people that their bodies are described as fat and sleek, and, and that's matched with a, 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 a life that is frankly problem-free. They're, they have no troubles like everyone else, no pangs. 
Everything just seems like it's going it well. It's nothing but sunny days for these people. He describes it further in verse 6. They have no regard for anyone. They put on pride and violence like clothes and jewelry. You might say like a well-worn set of blue jeans. These people just slide right into abusing other people. It it gets even worse though. As they continue, it turns out that their lives are resulting in greater and greater prosperity. Look down in verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at at ease. They increase in riches. All this evil is resulting in a bigger and bigger pile of money. Verses 7 through 10 focus in on one particular part of their evil. That is what starts in their heart and spews its way out of their mouth. Uh, Remember what Jesus said, uh, out of the overflow of the mouth, uh, the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, a heart filled with follies, as is described in verse 7, ends up spewing out all sorts of garbage. Uh, they, They scoff. They revile others. They tear down and threaten. They even dare to speak against heavenly realities. They blaspheme. You might think with all this, people would steer clear of these people, but that's, that's not what happens. Look in verse 10. People turn their back, uh, therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. These people, despite all of their evil, are admired. They're listened to. They're even emulated. So much so that some of God's people are coming to the conclusion, this must be the way to live. How can you get away with living a life like that without catching a lightning bolt? That's the type of question that Asaph is asking. How do you even live with yourself, though? How do you live such an overtly evil life and sleep at night? Well, verse 11 gives us a clue what's happening in their hearts and minds. They say, how can God know? Is there no knowledge? Is there knowledge in the most high? These people are living out the idea of life that you get what you get and you try to forget about God. You do all you can to maximize the here and now because, well, everything else is not worth even thinking about. Now, you might think Asaph, maybe he's being a bit over the top here. Maybe he's exaggerating a little. I mean, sure, there are people that do bad things, but are they really that bad? Think about our day. Think about the rise of celebrity culture, of people who become famous for very publicly doing immoral things. Think about the many politicians that find their way into power by lying and backstabbing and compromising, all while seemingly have no conscience about the matter. Think about our society, how you're being pressured even to celebrate for an entire month something that God's word very clearly says is sinful. Have you ever had the thought? It doesn't seem right that people pushing this type of evil should be prospering. It doesn't seem right that evil just keeps on getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Has God forgotten about us? Am I even living this life, this Christian life? Is this even worthwhile? I remember sitting with a a lawyer 
who was deeply troubled about what he had seen in his law firm. He had come out of law school with great intentions. He was a brilliant man. He thought he would climb the ladder within his company, become a partner. But soon he realized that the people that got promoted were not just the ones that did good work. They were the ones that were willing to compromise their morals. He started asking, is that how it's supposed to work? Do you ever find yourself asking, is it worthwhile to deny myself, to live the Christian life? If so, you're not so far from Asaph. And in verses 13 through 14, we see just how close to the precipice he came. He was so close that his toes were dangling over the edge as he looked down into unbelief. Look at verse 13. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Asaph was this close from abandoning this whole God thing altogether. But thanks be to God, he didn't. He didn't go over the edge. He he actually didn't even articulate these words, as verse 15 tells us. He kept them inside his heart. And something changed Asaph's view of life. Or rather, someone did. That's what our second section shows us. How Asaph has a transformed vision of life and himself, and most importantly, of God. A vision through the prism of God's providence in 16 through 28. Now, I told you a little bit about the type of psalm this is. You might say it is a wisdom psalm. Wisdom psalms work in stark contrast. There's, There's only two ways you can live. You're either on the righteous side or the wicked side, nothing in between. Oh, this one's riffing on that a little bit. One other piece about this psalm you need to know, though, is that it has what's called a chiastic structure to it. Uh, That's a fancy way of saying it starts and ends in the same place, and in between it takes steps that are mirrored on each side and that meet in the middle. Well, in this case, the middle is verses 16 and 17, And in a chiastic structure, the middle is the most important part. So let's look carefully at verses 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearying task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Asaph goes to a very familiar place, As a Levitical worship leader, he certainly would have been in the sanctuary regularly. Now, we don't know what he did in the sanctuary. Uh, Some commentators like John Calvin uh, uh, speculate that maybe he was studying the scrolls of the scriptures and came to his epiphany. Uh, Others think maybe he was engaging in corporate worship. It was a, a gathering like the one we're doing here with God's people. Frankly, there's no way to know exactly what Asaph was doing, but what we can know is what was done to him. Asaph, while he's standing in the place that most shows us God's presence, the very sanctuary, Asaph has his entire view of life changed forever. He begins to look at life through the prism of God's providence. I I don't know if you have ever played around with a prism. Uh, They're a lot of fun. I used to work in a science museum and they had prisms where you'd put light in one end and out would come a rainbow. Uh, The the way it works is it turns out that light, white light, um, is not 
one single color. It's actually a, a blend of colors. And if you put it through the, the right type of material, we call it a prism, the different frequencies of light, the different strands of color could be separated out so you can actually see them. Well, Asaph, you might say, puts in this view of the wicked prospering, and he puts it through the prism of God's providence. Uh, God's providence is a way of describing God's governance or involvement in his creation. You might say it's God's involvement in your life, in your heart, in your future, your past, in your present. It's God's involvement in everything. Asaph begins to see the world through that. And what he sees on the other end, it changes his heart. It fills him with joy. It banishes envy forever. It simply vanishes and what he's left with is so much better, a view of being with God forever. There's one stream of white light that goes in one end, and we see four streams of multicolored beauty that come out the others. There's four visions that Asaph has that we see in the rest of the psalm. First, in 18 through 20, he has a new vision of the wicked. He discerns that their end, that is the the destination they're headed is not a good one. Uh, remember, Asaph had told us that he thought his feet were about to slip. Look in verse 18. He sees that God has set their feet in a slippery place. He, he sees coming the moment of the wicked's ruin, the moment when God will one day judge them for their sins, and he realizes that this means that they're not getting away with anything. They're not living the good life. In just but a moment, their seeming triumph will be over. Uh, verse 20 uses this image of God waking up and the wicked vanishing like a dream. Have you ever thought about dreams? Uh, you, you get up and maybe for, if you're like me, you, for a few moments you remember a little bit about what you dream about. Most of our dreams we forget about by the time we're done drinking our coffee. They're, they're not real. They're mental illusions that are here for a moment and then they're gone and you forget about them altogether. That's what the wicked are like in God's eyes. In just a moment, they will be gone from his presence forever and forgotten. He sees the next second vision of them, a, a second vision, a vision of his own sin in 21 through 22. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Asaph confesses that even these words that he didn't actually say, but he felt and thought, these words were sin before God. He has mistrusted God. I just need to pause because at this moment, we live in a time where our emotions are thought of as virtually unquestionable. Philosopher Charles Taylor calls us, uh, says that we're living in an age of authenticity. The, the idea is that what is authentic, what you feel, what you think, is so important that you better not repress it or hold it back. You better say it and everyone had better celebrate whatever it is. But notice how that is completely incompatible with the way Asaph understands his own thoughts and even his emotions. The fact that he would dare to question God in his heart, just because he was authentic does not mean this was not sinful. Asaph shows us an example of repenting even for the thoughts and motives that we don't even articulate to others. Third vision in 23 through 26. 
He sees a new vision of God's grace. Asaph understands that he hasn't been missing out on anything. God has been giving him something far greater than the evil that he had been envying, the seeming pleasures of this world. God has been giving him the gift of himself. At 23 through 24, he sees these intimate images of God. God's holding him by his right hand. He's always by his side. God's guiding him, giving him counsel. One day, God will embrace him in glory. He will be received gladly into the courts of heaven. And then in verses 25 through 26, we have some of the verses that have been most memorized in the Bible, and for good reason. Asaph has come to the conclusion that only God will satisfy him. And listen to these beautiful words he pens. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Asaph realizes that he has found the true source of satisfaction and joy and delight in this world. And he's been with him this whole time. His God is the one that he should pursue because his God is the one that will forever satisfy Asaph. There's one final vision that Asaph has. A new vision of the two roads in 27 through 28. As I told you, the psalm ends where it begins. With that broken pattern of the way of the wicked and the road of the righteous. But look now how it's transformed. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You will put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me... It is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. Asaph looks and sees the two roads, the two different ways you can walk through this life. And he realizes that it is true, that it is right to be on the righteous way. The righteous road leads to God's presence and goodness and endless joy. And the way of the wicked leads to destruction and sorrow, and out away from the presence of the Lord, the worst of all fates. Asaph has looked through the prism of God's providence, seeing God's involvement in his own life and God's coming involvement in judging the wicked and uh, blessing the righteous. And he's had his whole understanding of himself and his life transformed as a result. Now, brothers and sisters, as Christians realize that your vision of the two roads is even more clear than Asaph's was. Because we can look through the prism of God's providence and we can see a point where the road of the righteous and the way of the wicked cross. A moment where, a place where they meet at a little hill outside of Jerusalem called the place of the skull and the cross of Christ. We can see the way that God deals with the sins of the wicked, even by punishing his own son for the sins of the world. We can see the way that God rewards the righteous by paying for the sins of his people and giving them a way to be brought close to him forever without fear. We can see the sinless Savior give his life a perfect love and know that there is our satisfaction. There is our reason to live a life for God. And there is our promise of forever pleasures with him. 
Because at the cross of Jesus, envy of evil vanishes. And you are assured an eternity of pleasure with God. So brothers and sisters, don't envy evil when you see it. Don't become frustrated when it feels like people are getting away with sin again and again. And you start to wonder whether your life following Christ is even worthwhile. Maybe you're here this morning and you're single, and that's not something you would, cho- would have chosen for yourself if you had the choice. Maybe you see people around you, even people that are in romantic relationships, people that seem to be happy, seem to be living the good life, and even if they are getting to that relationship status through sinful means. Would you remember that as much as it may appear that they are prospering. It's never the right thing to pursue sin in order to satisfy yourself. Would you remember that Christ is what will delight you, whether he gives you a spouse or not? It is worth living a life for him because he's already given you so much more than you could ever sacrifice. Uh, One piece of advice, maybe memorize verses 25 and 26 this week. Ask God to help you to believe these words in your own heart and see if it changes the way you you see even this relationship status that you wouldn't have chosen. Um, Parents, maybe this week you find yourself particularly frustrated with your kids. Uh, Maybe they haven't turned out the way you had hoped they would. Maybe the vision you had of what your family was gonna be like, it just hasn't come to pass and you find yourself angry Frustrated, even questioning God. What have I done to deserve this? Would you see your family with the vision that God has for it? His involvement in your family? That the kids that are in your family are not there by accident. He's entrusted them to you for a reason. And that he's right there by your side. Even on the hard days of parenting. He's done you no wrong and he never will. Would you trust him in the midst of it? Students, I know there is so much pressure on you to to look a certain way, to do certain things, to say certain things. I hope you don't see the lives that other people have and find yourself envying them. As glamorous as a celebrity's life may look on Instagram, as much fun as it may seem that your friends are having as they engage in sin, you will always regret walking down the way of the wicked, even if it's just a short journey. You know, in my, all my years as a pastor, I have never had anyone tell me that they regret deciding to live for Christ. But I've had lots of people tell me that they regret chasing their sin for a time. Live without regret. Learn right now that Jesus is what will satisfy you and, and live your life with a pure heart and clean hands pursuing him. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're angry. Maybe it's even very personal. Maybe someone has hurt you deeply. Someone that doesn't seem to have reaped any consequences for what they did to you. Maybe you find yourself entertaining thoughts of revenge, feeling as if God couldn't possibly be on your side if he let that happen to you. Friend, would you trust God's timing for when he brings the way of the wicked to its end? Would you remember that no one really gets away with anything? That one day all evil will be punished 
either at the cross of Christ or in the eternal sorrow of being sent away from God's presence to an eternity under his wrath? Would you trust his justice? And would you allow him to bring healing to your life? Maybe even he would put it in your heart to forgive that person, even if you never get an apology. Brothers and sisters, when you see your life through the prism of God's providence, it changes everything. It makes envy vanish forever. And it fills your heart with a joy that this world can never provide. All the satisfaction that you ever sought, everything you ever needed right there for you in Christ. I remember after a service, a dear brother who had had a hard, hard road, a hard life seeking after Christ, coming up to me with tears in his eyes. He had been single his own life. That was not his choice. He had worked very hard and lost every penny to his name through a deal that went bad, someone who defrauded him. He felt lonely, he felt abandoned, and frankly, he felt that God had dealt him a bad hand. And yet in a worship service, not unlike this one, he heard the preaching of God's word and he stood up and he sang a song about the goodness of Christ, about Christ being all he needed. And he told me that something changed. I remember through tears as he told me, he said, Pastor, I realize I have everything I need because I have Jesus. Brothers and sisters, you have that same thing. Don't envy evil. Certainly don't pursue it. Remember the righteousness that is yours in Christ and that you will forever delight beholding his face. Let's pray.